morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. If you don't know me, my name is Billy. I get the privilege to be one of the pastors here, and it is a great honor and great privilege to do that. As you can tell, we're coming up on Connection Family Weekend, which is this uh, weekend coming up, and uh, we would love for you to be a part of that. And so this is kind of our version of Vacation Bible School, and so uh, we as a church are committed to partnering with you uh, as a parent to raise your kids up in the Lord and, and, and to really connect them to a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do this weekend is this kind of a VBS for kids, but also a VBS uh, for parents as well. Uh, it's going to start Friday uh, at 6 o'clock, and we're going to do a Friday night and a Saturday uh, morning. going to be a great time. My wife and I will be here. Uh, we're looking forward to it. If you would like to sign up, which we'd love for you to sign up so we'd know how many to prepare for, you can go to ccvidalia.com slash cfw cfw and there should be a form on there uh, to sign up let us know uh, that you guys are coming and uh, we're expecting a incredible weekend uh, if you have your bibles go ahead and open up to second samuel chapter 11 second samuel uh, chapter 11 uh, if you've not been here we are in the middle of a series called knowing god and uh, it has been a long series we started all the way back in january walking through the Bible. And so what we've done is kind of look at the highlights of the storyline of the Bible and show how uh, every story in the Bible points us to Christ. And so we really want to uh, show that. And so last week, if you were here, uh, Blake taught about the rise of a guy named David, King David, one of the incredible uh, characters in the Bible. Today, we're going to talk about the fall of David, right? So a uh, little, little uh, somber, but I believe Today's going to be an incredible day. I believe God has a plan, and God wants to work in the lives of people, and I know it's been challenging me this week, studying and preparing, so I pray that it'll do the same uh, for you. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump uh, right in. So let's pray. Father, again, we love you. Uh, God, we're here for you. God, we believe your word is powerful. God, it, it is your word. God, you wrote it, and you wrote a book to us, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, uh, you speak to us. And uh, Father, I pray this morning as we open your word, uh, and God, we set our focus in on you, that the power of your Holy Spirit uh, would speak to hearts all over this room. And God, you would show us who you are. Uh, God, you would show us uh, the sin in our lives. And uh, God, you would show us how great of a Savior Jesus is. And uh, that's our prayer. We love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, this, it, like the story of Saul, is probably one of the most tragic stories in the entire Bible. Uh, but don't you love that the Bible is a story, it is, is, is a book full of real people with real issues, and those are not hidden in Scripture. You don't read a fairy tale when you read the Bible. Uh, you read about real men and women, just like you and I, who have real issues. And you read about a real God uh, that shows real grace and does a real work in people's lives. And so we can learn so much from that today. So let's read uh, chapter 11, verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It's important to understand that David was a king, and usually in the spring, kings go off to war. But for some reason, this spring, David stayed at home. He remained at home, right? And so we see 
David was not where he was supposed to be. It's almost as if he uh, had become idle and had become complacent in his life. And instead of fighting battles for Christ and the war for God, he was kind of doing his own thing. And I think we'll see that clearly as you continue to read. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, it's important to understand a few things. Uh, One, Jerusalem is a city uh, on a hill, so to speak. And so as David would have the palace on the hill and look down, he would be able to see the entire city from there. Uh, That's one thing to understand. The other thing to understand is who is Uriah the Hittite? Uh, Uriah the Hittite is one of David's mighty men. If you read the book of Samuel, you'll figure out that for a lot of David's life, he was actually on the run from King Saul because King Saul was jealous of him and wanted to kill him. And so David had this group of men uh, that were called David's mighty men, and they protected him. They were servants of him. They uh, pretty much, David owed his life to them. And so when he sleeps with the wife of Uriah, which we're about to see, this is not some stranger. This is a guy that had laid his life down for David. And so we see it, verse 4, then David sent messengers to get Bathsheba. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. That's when you say, "Uh uh-oh. Verse 6, so David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So what we're about to see is David obviously caught in sin. It's a big deal, adultery. And uh, now there's a baby on the way. So David, instead of confessing and doing what was right, now begins to devise a plan to cover up his sin. So listen to what he did and how he responded. So David, uh, verse 6, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. Verse 10, David was told Uriah did not go home. Okay, this doesn't sound like a big deal, but to David's it's a big deal because it's not his plan. Right? His plan is that he would go home, he would sleep with his wife, and now the baby could be his and not David's. And that wasn't working the way that David wanted it to do. So, here we go. Uh, verse 10 again. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, listen, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. And my commander, Joab, and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house eat and drink and make love to my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. So we see Uriah is not worried about comfort. Uriah is worried about the battle, the mission of God. He's focused on the purposes of God, and David's not. And so you see this contrast between Uriah's way of thinking and his way of thinking. So don't you know 
if David was not already convicted that this was a punch to the stomach to say, hey, you need to get your priorities in order like Uriah. Verse 12. So that didn't work. Next plan. Plan B. 12. Then David said to him, stay here just one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, Uriah ate and drank with him and David made Uriah drunk. Plan B, let's get him drunk and see if maybe he'll make uh, want to have sex with his wife and go home. We'll see. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants. He did not go home. Plan B failed. Do we have a plan C? Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. Plan C, murder, is what happened. And of course, if you continue reading chapter 11, you'll see that Uriah dies, and not just Uriah, but a lot of other men in David's army die to try to cover up his sin. They're dying for what they did not even know was going on. And what happens after that is David ends up marrying Bathsheba to try to cover it up so that everybody will think he's the hero right now. Uh, his, her husband's die. Here's the widow. She's, ha- she's pregnant with child. I'll bring her in and now be the hero that has taken in the widow and uh, take care of her. And he thinks everything's going to be fine. And nobody knows the cover-up plan worked, plan C executed well. But then you get to the end of chapter 11 and we get a verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So God knew. So there's three things I think we can learn from this passage today. I know it's a somber passage, but I believe we can learn a lot from it. So I want to talk about three things. I want to focus on these things. One, the fall of David. What can we learn from the fall of David? What is God trying to teach us about uh, from the fall of David? Secondly, David's response, right? Initially, we see him respond in a bad way, but later on, we're going to see David respond in a good way, and we begin to see what the process of repentance looked like in David's life. I want to talk about that. And then lastly, we see that we need a better king. There's a hope for a better king. David is not the king we need. Jesus is the king that we need. And so we'll talk about those. So first, the fall of David. So again, although this story is about David, he's not the only person in a fight against sin. But whether you know it or not, if you're in this room and you're a Christian, Your fight in this world is against sin, right? Sin is what hinders you in your relationship with God. If you're not a Christian, sin is what separates you in your relationship with God. But either way, sin is something that we all will have to deal with. If you're a Christian, this is our story. And even though the power of sin was defeated in Christ, which is why Christ came and died, he took the punishment that we deserved. He rose on the third day to overcome the power of sin, which is death. And so although that's defeated in this world, the presence of sin still remains until Jesus comes back. So we need to understand that. To be a Christian doesn't mean that you you don't wrestle with sin anymore. That is a misconception and not in the Bible. And so for, for us, we need to understand that to follow Jesus in this world will be to fight sin in our life, right? Nobody is perfect. Nobody is not in that fight against sin. So we can learn a few things here from David. Letter A, we can learn about the power of sin, the power of sin. Remember, 
This is David that we're talking about. This is one of the greatest men in the entire Bible. This was a man known uh, as, as a man after God's own heart. You, you heard Blake preach last week. He's the anointed king. He is God's chosen king. This is the same man that wrote Psalm 40, that wrote the majority of the book of Psalms. Listen to his heart in Psalm 40. David says, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. We know this is a guy that's after God's own heart. He's, he loves God. He wants to pursue God. Now he has, covered, he has coveted another man's wife. He's committed adultery with her. He's murdered her husband, and he's lied to cover it up. How does a man after God's own heart, how does this man, this hero of the faith, slip into sin, not just one sin, but break pretty much five of the Ten Commandments at one time. This is a big deal. How could a man do this? The answer is the power of sin. Sin is powerful. Did you see how it lured David in? And then once it lured him in, it required him to commit more sin to cover up what he had already done. That's how sin works. What this passage teaches us is that nobody, and I mean Nobody, not one person in this room, including me, is beyond sin. No person in this room is immune to sin. We all wrestle with sin. Though our sin may not look the same, we all wrestle with some sort of sin. And my sin's not greater than your sin, and your sin's not greater than mine. It is what it is. It lives inside of all of us. If we don't fight against it, then it and, and if we don't lean on the Spirit of God and the grace of God to help us, then we, like David, will fall, and great will be our fall as well. So what is it that makes sin so powerful? What is it that draws us in to sin? I want you to write this down. The only reason that sin has any power in our lives is because we love it. The only reason that sin has any power in our lives, no matter who you are, no matter what sin it is that you struggle with, is that there, deep within you, is an attraction to it. Uh, there is a belief that it will satisfy you, that if I can just live for myself, or if I could just have this, or do this, uh, that it will satisfy this longing that I have to have it. It's the same sin that we see in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden uh, that Adam and Eve uh, struggled with. It, it, it's literally, uh, they see a fruit, it, it's attractive to them, something about it, is attractive. They bite into it, failing to think about the result of what they are doing. But I want you to listen to me. There's one thing that the Bible makes very clear, so clear. Sin will absolutely destroy your life. 100% sin will absolutely destroy your life. Our choice to walk in sin is not harmless. I don't care how you're thinking about it. I don't care how you've justified it or rationalized it. And I'm talking to myself just as much as I'm talking to you. Sin has very real consequences. And sin is so destructive. Look what it does to David here. Because of David's sin, Uriah dies. Not only Uriah, but many soldiers die directly because of his sin. A child dies. His family for the rest of the time in Samuel will be in turmoil. There'll be rape and betrayal and uh, they'll be killing one another and even trying to kill David because directly because of David's sin. We saw it in the life of Saul a couple weeks ago. 
We, we saw this consequence that Saul would not uh, repent. He would not come and humble himself before God and realize that he was, what he was doing was living for himself and living for the approval of others. And because of that, God took the kingdom from him and he spent the rest of his life in misery and his life eventually ended in suicide. And so we just see this, this turmoil and this, this path of destruction that sin leads, leaves in our life. And I want you to know today that there's no pet sins in the Bible. Like there's no little sins or big sins. All sin is like playing with a tiger. And it's cute and it's fun when it's little and it can't hurt you, but it's going to grow. And when it grows up, it's going to eat you and kill you. That is what it's designed to do, is to prey on things that are smaller than him. So we need to understand the Bible gives us this picture that sin is crouching at our door like a lion, like a tiger, ready to devour us. That's the mindset that God wants us to have when it comes to sin. In God's eyes, there are no pet sins. Pride is no different than murder. Lying is no different than adultery. Greed is no different than homosexuality. We see Jesus himself. If you're angry in your heart towards somebody, you've committed murder. They're the same to him. If you've lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery. There's no pet sins in the Bible. All sin leads to destruction. All sin that's left unchecked and undealt with in our lives will destroy us. No matter how small you think it is, no matter how much you've justified it and rationalized it in your head, Listen to me, no matter what it is. Listen, sexual sin will destroy you. It seems fun. We see that here. Everybody's doing it. Polygamy was a thing in David's day. Just get another wife. It doesn't matter who you hurt to do it. As long as it's consensual, it's not a big deal. Lust will destroy us. You say, well, Billy, it's just pornography. Nobody knows about it. It's not hurting anybody. Oh, but it is. It's destroying your mind. It's destroying you. It's destroying your marriage. If you're not married, it's destroying your future marriage. And plus, the girl that you're looking at on this TV screen and computer screen, listen, this is where it began to be real for me when I struggled with pornography in college was this daughter is somebody's daughter. Like this woman that I'm looking at that's arousing me is somebody's daughter, and I have a daughter. And I think about this daughter. I mean, the, the text goes out of the way. Did you notice when uh, there, in the story that it says that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah and the daughter of Elias? Why would it say that? Because David, sexual sin objectifies things. It, it makes you think that the person's not really a person. It's not just sexual sin. Racism does the same thing. It objectifies people where they're no longer a person. They're just an object to give you what you want. And this is not what the Bible intends. This is, this is pride. Pride will destroy us. Pride is the silent killer. Listen, it seems good. It seems like if you're confident and arrogant and cocky, that it's the way forward to move up in the world, to be confident, to know everything, to be right about everything, to be blind to your own sin and to see everyone else's issues but not see your own. To not need anyone or need anything, to not need to listen to anybody or anything. By the way, they're just all jealous. That's what pride tells you. They're just jealous. They don't know. It will destroy you. Be careful. Pride always comes before destruction. We've seen that with Saul. We see it right here with David. Busyness will destroy us. Listen, our culture tells us that to be busy is to be successful. 
And it's not necessarily a sin to be busy. However, when my career and my schedule doesn't allow for much time for Christ, it becomes sinful. When my schedule is so full that I never even think about Christ, then it becomes the seedbed for all kinds of sin. Most destructive, the most destructive sin in my life has always started with me becoming too busy for my relationship with God, period. And when I begin to let off the gas and I begin to focus on other things, even if it's ministry, and let off the gas in my own relationship with God, that's where the seedbed of sin in my life begins to flourish. Laziness will destroy us. We're about to see that with David. Idleness, complacency, all of the sin will destroy us. Anger will destroy us. You say, Billy, you don't understand. I deserve to be angry. You don't know what happened to me. He did this to me. She did this to me. This person hurt me. It's okay for me to be angry. They deserve it. I mean, it's not a big deal. Nobody really knows it. I mean, I don't openly, actively rage on a person. As long as I control it in public, it doesn't matter what I do behind closed doors. Be careful. The sin that's in your heart in the dark will always expose itself in the light. It's just a matter of time. And God cares as much about the sin in the dark as he does the sin in the light. Be careful. Sin will destroy you. Slander, gossip will destroy us. Listen, we live in a small town. This is literally where slander and gossip just rages on and on. Participating in small town gossip seems harmless. I mean, we don't mean any harm, right? We're just kind of telling everybody what's going on in the community. We're just joking about this person or just picking on this person. But if you would not say something that you're saying to this person's face, then what you're saying is not coming out of genuine love for this person. It is sin. It is destructive. And James says the untamed tongue has the power to set the whole world on fire. There's nothing more powerful than sin, specifically slander and gossip. For some of us, it's, it's not living in community will destroy us, right? We're, we're passively just trying to go through life. We're forsaking the gathering. We're skipping out on connect group or we're skipping out on the gathering of our community. And you'd say, Billy, well, I, I know I haven't been to group in a while, but we've been busy. It's the summer. Uh, you know, I'd say be careful because the first step away from God is a step away from true community. I'm not just talking about somewhere that you show up and hear me preach. I'm talking about a place where you have people in your life that love you, that love God, and that want to see you continue to grow. A place where you can be honest about what you're struggling with. A place that you can be honest about what the Word of God says and how it's convicting you. That's the community that when we get away from that, listen to me. Isolation from biblical community is spiritual suicide. You are not designed to do this thing alone. God has designed himself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in community. We're designed in his image to live in community. Sin will destroy you. All sin has an incredible power to destroy our lives. The question is never, will it, if it will destroy us? It's will it and when. When will it destroy us? Never if or never will. It's when will it destroy us. Not only us, but it's going to destroy those around us. And most importantly, it destroys our relationship with God. The Bible's so clear. Listen, I could preach on this forever. I'm not trying to beat a dead horse. I just want you to understand the power of sin. The same sin that we're watching destroy lives and lives and lives throughout the Bible is active and alive in you and I. Listen, 
the seed of every type of sin, even the ones you say, I would never do that, exist inside of every human heart. And in the right circumstance, will present itself. And if we do not press into God, it will be what comes out with us. The Bible's clear. Don't play around with sin. Don't flirt with sin. Don't look at sin. Don't entertain it. Don't do any of those things. It says, flee from it and kill it. Kill it in your life, whatever you have to do to do that. You'd say, Billy, dude, you are serious, man. Like, why are you taking this so serious? I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. Jesus is talking about adultery. He's talking about lust. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Think I'm serious. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, then cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Listen, I know sin seems fun. It seems like something that you can just play with. But it's not fun to play with a loaded gun. Specifically, a loaded gun in a room with you, your family, and the people that you care about. Because that's exactly what sin does, is it destroys. And just like a loaded gun causes mass destruction, sin will cause it in our lives. So John Owen, the great theologian, Puritan, says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Secondly, the pattern of sin. We see the pattern of sin in David's life, and I think we can learn from this, and I know I've learned a ton from this in my own life. How do I recognize this pattern, and how do I cut off this pattern when it begins to take uh, suit in my life? And I want to give you this pattern. It's kind of a four-part process. The first is idleness. We see idleness in David's life. The idleness leads to temptation, or you don't have to say leads to, but in his idleness, temptation seems to flourish. And then it leads to the action of sin, and then it leads to the concealing of that sin, or to cover up that sin. So we see this pattern happen. So let's talk about each one of those for a minute. Idleness, complacency, uh, unengaged, laziness, whatever you want to see. In the spring, when the kings are supposed to be at war, David remained. David's sin started with him staying at home from the fight. He was not engaged in the mission of God. He was not engaged in the battle. And because of that, he was bored. And for, for some of us in this room, if, if we need to understand, if David would have been in the battle, he wouldn't have been in bed with a woman. It's, it's physically impossible. And we need to understand that our greatest battles don't come when, our, when we're busy, specifically busy with God's mission and busy with God's agenda. They come when we're bored. When we're bored, when our minds are idle, an idle mind, idle in mission, is where sin flourishes. And so we see this in the life of David. And the best way for us to fight sin, listen to me, is to be engaged with God. Like engage with God, like pursue God in your relationship, press into him, try to honor him in all that you do. And the things of this world, the sin in your life will begin to grow strangely dim in light of that the problem for most of us is not that the power of sin is too much it's that our love for god is too weak and so we got to cultivate this love for god cultivate this picture of who god is and that's only done through time with him and his word through cultivating a loving relationship with him next is temptation i want you to notice a few things about temptation here david's on the rooftop 
Nothing wrong with being on the rooftop, right? You may like to eat on the rooftop. But what he saw on the rooftop, it says David saw Bathsheba bathing on the roof. And instead of bouncing his eyes and saying, oh, I need to get out of here, like Joseph did in Genesis where he ran from Potiphar's wife, what did he do? He continued to look. You can think of almost a man sitting at a computer screen late at night. And instead of running away from the internet and the computer screen where you can get yourself in trouble, he just sits and indulges. We see this. He beholds Bathsheba. The sin was not in the looking. Saul suggests a glance, but beholding suggests that the gaze, it was a gaze, not a glance. David's sin wasn't the look. It was the lingering of the look that began to cultivate coveting in his heart. And then he saw her and wanted her, and then it kind of went downhill from there. His temptation started with seeing. You've got to understand this. In Genesis chapter 3, we see the same thing in the Garden of Eden. It says Adam and Eve looked at the fruit, and it was appealing, right? It's seeing, desiring, and then taking or tasting. Seeing, desiring, tasting. So it's, it's the seeing of something that temptation starts with, and then it cultivates the desire within you, and it arouses that desire to then say, I want, she's beautiful, I want her, she will satisfy me. And then from there, sin begins to take place. I want you to listen to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. It's a very helpful example for us to understand. James says, when tempted, no one should say that God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. We need to understand that. No temptation comes from God. Some trials that we walk through may come from God, but not temptation. Big difference. Verse 14. Listen. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away. This is like a fishing term. When they are lured away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then when they're enticed, after desire has conceived or you've given in and say, I want this, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Does it say sometimes it gives birth to death? No, it says gives birth to death. So what do we learn? James compares temptation to fishing. I don't know how many fishermen I have in the room, but if I'm going bass fishing, there's one lure that I prefer to use. I've not found a place where the fish don't like it yet. It's a black trick worm, right? Black trick worm, put a little weight on it, a worm hook. You're ready to go. Just put it on the bottom and just tap it up and down. And they can't stand it. Well, I want you to think about temptation in your life that way. So when Satan comes to tempt you or the world comes to tempt you or a woman, whatever it is that, that temptation comes through, what is that, that lure that arouses that desire in you? The problem is not the lure as much as it is the desire within you. So we all need to come to, uh, come to grips with the fact that we have evil desire in us, sins at work in us, and we're filled with a world of temptation that arouses these desires in us. So there's two major factors at work. One, what is in us, evil desire, and what we see, right? So evil desire in us is this hunger for sin, this attraction towards sin, lured and enticed by what we see is this fishing lure of whatever in front of us, then when we buy into the lie and we believe the lie, then we act like David. We go after it. And then the Bible says we die. It leads us to death, spiritual death, physical death, all sorts of issues of destruction. 
The next step is action. So he was tempted, and then the action began. It started with a look. It aroused lust and coveting in David's heart. Once David believed the lie, you need Bathsheba, but only Bathsheba can satisfy you in this moment. She's, she's what you need. She'll make you happy. More, more, more. We can't forget that David was a guy with seven wives and ten concubines. That's 17 women. You would think he'd be satisfied with 17 women. But that's exactly how sin works. It's never satisfied. Never. Never satisfied. The more you engage in it, the more you want. The deeper it draws you in. So next, the sin was conceived and turned into action. And you see David begin to be controlled by sin. That's the picture. Is If we're controlled by sin, we can't be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Those two are opposite. The Bible calls it the flesh versus the spirit. And so David began to scent and inquire. Notice the warnings. Hey, this is the wife of Uriah, man. This is the daughter of Elias. Are you really going to do this, pretty much? David's, he's not worried about that because he's not thinking with the Holy Spirit. He's thinking with his flesh and lust and coveting. And so he does it anyway. He doesn't care about Uriah. You see, that's exactly what sin does. It doesn't care about anybody. It doesn't care about God. It doesn't care about the people involved. It doesn't care about you. Honestly, it's a death trap. It's like taking a pill that leads to death, but it tasting good. So immediately following the action, what do we see in David's life? We see guilt. We see shame. We see conviction in David. But what does he do? How does he respond? He responds with plan A. He tries to bring home Uriah and cover up the idea of having a baby with Bathsheba by getting Uriah to come home and sleep with Bathsheba. But that doesn't work because Uriah is too godly. He's too focused on the mission of God. Plan B, Uriah, let's get him drunk. Maybe he'll have a lapse of judgment and go home and sleep with his wife. But that doesn't work either. So plan C, let's murder Uriah. We'll bring Bathsheba in and then be the hero that cares for the widow of the soldier. Nobody will ever know. The problem is that's wrong. All sin is done before God. But you see, our natural response to sin is to hide. It's to hide. Even in the garden, we see Adam and Eve try to put fig leaves over their rebellion and sin to try to cover up the guilt and the shame and the nakedness. But the truth of the gospel is this. Write this down. If you cover your sin, Jesus will expose it in judgment. So if we try to cover our sin, then Jesus is going to expose it in judgment. But listen, if we expose our sin, if we're honest about our sin and we bring our sin before God, Jesus will cover it in grace. Jesus will cover it in grace. So what I want to teach you about the fall of David, I just want to give you some super practical advice. I can't spend long on it, but I want to just share from my heart what I've learned in my battle with sin. I'm not speaking to you as if somebody who's above sin. Listen, I wrestle with the same sin that a lot of you guys wrestle with on a daily basis. And here's a few things I'd ask you to write down. One, stay on the battlefield. Stay on the battlefield. Idleness is the garden in which sin flourishes in our life. When we're not engaged with God, when we're not engaged in community, when we're not engaged in mission, we have boredom. And when we're bored and we have nothing to do, nothing eternal to do with eternal value, sin begins to cultivate in our life. Number two, don't flirt with sin. 
Do not flirt with it. One word. Flee. Run. If anything smells like sin, looks like sin, does not honor God in any way, run from it. I don't care what it is. Run. The Bible says run. You are not strong enough. Don't underestimate the power of sin and don't overestimate your strength. Number three, stay in community. The safest place on earth for you is in the midst of honest, transparent, biblical community. It's to surround yourself with a group of people that love God and that love you, but they do it in that order. That they're willing to to speak to you and talk to you and, and, and share with you what God's teaching them. They're willing to ask you about your life and what you're struggling with and come alongside of you and help you. Number four, you're not above sin. Nobody's above sin. I'm not above sin. You're not above sin. Stay humble and stay hungry after God. Don't underestimate it. I'm telling you, if David fell, you and I will fall. We will fall. And so we got to be prepared and we got to be ready. So the question I ask myself and I want you to ask is, where do you see the pattern of sin at work in your life? Is it the idleness? Is that what God's speaking to you this morning? Is it the temptation? Maybe you're in the midst of temptation and you're flirting instead of fleeing. Maybe it's the action. Maybe you're already in it. Listen, we're going to talk about how to respond to it in a minute. Maybe you've already done it. Maybe you're in the concealed portion where you're beginning to try to hide it the same way David has hid it. So the second thing I want us to learn from the story is the response of David. And I want us to look at 2 Samuel and Psalm 51. uh, So you can put your fingers there in the Bible. But I want you to write this down first. The most important thing about a person is how they respond to sin in their lives. The most important thing about a person is how they respond to the sin in their lives. The Bible says the righteous man can fall seven times, but he gets up. Nobody in the Bible is perfect outside of Jesus. Maturity and godliness is not about perfection. Maturity and godliness is about responding to the sin in our life the right way. So let's listen to how this went down with David. One year later, David thinks he's in the clear. He gets a knock at the door. Verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Who sent him? The Lord. Praise God. That's the grace of God right there. When he came to him, here's what he said. There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. He's about to tell a story. The rich man is David. The poor man is Uriah. Verse 2. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. He was like a king. But the poor man had nothing except one little lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him, his children, it shared his food, it drank with his cup, it even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. It was all he had. It was his prized possession. This is how uh, Uriah felt about Bathsheba. But now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep and cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now, you're sitting here saying, like, man, Nathan, just tell the dude what's going on. Why are you telling it in this story? Well, I'll tell you, because sin blinds. And David was blind to his sin. He thought it was gone, but David was a king. And so in a kingdom, when when it comes to the courtroom, who's the judge? The king. 
So David was used to judging all of these different kinds of cases that come before him. So Nathan says, well, I'll just bring him a case that explains him and what he does and get him to tell me the verdict, and then I'm going to turn it back around on him. Great plan, Nathan. We need Nathans in our life that are smart, that know how to break through a stubborn heart. Jesus knew what he was doing. Verse 5, David burned with anger against the man, and he said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Oh, really? Verse 6, he must pay for that lamb four times over, and because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David in the most applicable sermon example of all time, you're the man. You're the man. You can almost sense the feeling and the, and the, and the silence in the room as he told this story. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Nathan. I anointed you king over Israel, David, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house. And because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own, this is what the Lord says, out of your own household I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I want you to listen to this reply. This is the gospel. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. David didn't have to die because Jesus would die later for his sin. Verse 14, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you today will die. So I want to point out a few things from this. The first thing I want you to see is the grace of God. If you're reading this passage in a way that you doesn't show you the grace of God, you're reading it in the wrong way. Nathan is a tangible picture of the grace of God. So what do we learn about grace by looking at Nathan? Well, first we learn that God's grace meets us where we are. God's grace pursued David in his sin. Many of us think God's mad at us because of what we've done. Now sin breaks his heart, but God's grace pursues us. And God's grace came and met David where he was, but it wouldn't leave him that way. Because two, God's grace exposes our sin. It brings us face to face with who we truly are. No ifs, ands, or buts. We can't hide in front of God. He knows exactly who we are. It exposes our sin. Number three, God's grace humbles us before it heals us. When we experience God's grace, it should create a humility in our life. There's nothing that humbles us more than a correct view of our sin before a holy, perfect God. And when it humbles us, it begins the process of healing in our life. And number four, God's grace forgives us of our sin. Notice that he said, David, you're not going to die. Your sins have been forgiven. God's grace comes to forgive. It's not to condemn you, right? John 3.16, what does John 3.17 say? The Son of Man didn't come to condemn, but to give life, to save. That's what he came to do. The second thing we see in here is the process of repentance. That's what I love about Saul and David is you see this tangible picture of repentance. 
Saul never repents. David repents, right? But David kind of responds the same way Saul responded at first, right? He responds with a cover-up. He responds uh, with, with trying to hide the thing. But what you see is Samuel confronts Saul, and then David confront, or Nathan confronts David. And when they're confronted in their sin, we see a very different response. One godly, David, and one ungodly in Saul. So let's learn. When we are caught and exposed and convicted, or someone comes to us and calls us in our sin, there are really about four responses that are seen pretty normal. And I've seen these in my life, and I think you'll see them in yours. There's three wrong ones and one right one. The first wrong one is denial. We deny it, right? It, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. Or, I, I, you know, we just flat out lie and deny it, right? We see that uh, multiple times. We see that in the life of Saul. Secondly, you justify. The second response is justification. It's, uh, hey, it wasn't that bad. You, my situation, this was the best thing for me to do, uh, you know, and it almost makes sense in your mind, and you begin to twist your mind to make sense of sin. Thirdly, you blame shift. The wrong response. It's not my fault, it's their fault. This is Marriage Central 101. Most spouses, husbands are phenomenal at talking about their wives' issues. Wives are phenomenal at talking about their husband's issues. But when God deals with us, he's not worried about the other. He's worried about our heart. He's worried about us, what we can control before God. The right response is repentance. Not denial, not justification, not blame shifting. But God wants us to respond in repentance. And he shows us this in Psalm 51. This is the best, most complete picture of repentance we see in the entire Bible. So write it down Listen to me. Verse 1, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. This is David's journal after uh, he was confronted by Nathan. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash all of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed, God, rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. How many of us need a pure heart and a steadfast spirit? How many of us need to be renewed? That's what repentance is all about. Verse 11, do not cast me out from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What a beautiful passage. Notice David's response. He's not trying to hide his sin. He's not trying to belittle his sin. He's not trying to take up for himself. He's not trying to blame others. No, he confesses his sin before God. He's honest. He knows God already sees it for what it is. He knows the punishment that he deserves is death. He experiences, and because he's known this and he's honest about it, then at that moment the cross becomes so real to him. And this is what repentance is about. And listen, for some of us in this room, this is what we need more than anything in the entire world. The reason your life doesn't look like Jesus is because you've never truly come to a place where when you see Christ on a cross, 
you realize that it's your sin that put him there. He chose, instead of punishing you and killing you, to send his son Jesus to die in your place. And when you see that cross, what you see is what your sin deserves. And you see a man, God, that loves you so much that he was willing to put himself in your place and die the death that you deserved so that you could have life, so that you could experience reconciliation to him. And listen, when you experience that and it becomes personal to you, it changes everything. That's what the gospel does in our life. And for some of us, that's what we need. We need this refreshing, this experience with God that's going to change our lives forever. I want you to notice that David asked God to help him change. For some of us, repentance has always been about what we can do. Well, I made the decision to stop doing that and start doing this. You're talking outward symptoms, man. You cannot change your own heart. You can change the symptoms of sin and you can stop doing some things in your life, but the root of sin is in your heart and there's only one person that can change it forever and that's Christ. And so you see David cry out from his knees, create in me a clean heart, God. Restore to me, cleanse me. And that's the power of God. That's what he does for his people as he gives us a new heart with new desires. The idea of repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of action. Think of repentance as you're turning from sin. You see what you're doing is sin against God. And you say, God, I don't want to do this anymore. God, help me live for you. And you turn 180 degrees and you say, I'm turning back to God. I'm going to live for God. The Christian life is a lifestyle of repentance. If that's not your lifestyle, you're not following Jesus. You're not following Jesus. Listen, you're not as good as you think you are. I'm not as good as I think I am. When I read God's word, I never walk away and say, man, I'm a stud. I walk away and say, I need to be more like him. God, I need your help to be more like him. So practical advice. I want to give you a couple things. One, I want to ask you to ask God to expose sin in your life. Write this down. I want these to be steps that we can take. Ask God to expose sin in your life. This is God's grace. Listen, it says the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is a God that wants to help, the God that wants to come and rescue us from our sin. Ask God to expose sin in our lives. Two, don't hide your sin. It ain't hidden before God. There ain't no sense in hiding it around here. Listen, it's, it's time for the church to quit being superficial. The church has always been designed by God to be a place for messed up people. It's been a pl- it should be the first place that someone in their sin runs, not the last place that they want to go to. Like, this is what the church is. It's a hospital for sick people. This is why God designed it. So for us, any of us, including myself, to stand up and talk or to talk to somebody and act as if we have everything together is sin in itself of pride and idolatry. Listen, apart from Christ, you are a wretch. And when somebody comes to you and confesses their sin or maybe they're struggling or maybe you hear about them doing something and you start to judge them, I want you to think about God's view of you. Maybe before you came to Christ or maybe even now in the sin that you struggle with. And I want you to respond 
in the same forgiveness and the same attitude that God responded to you in. That's the church. That's the attitude of the church. Shame on us. Shame on us for acting and being a place where a lost sinful or a sinful person doesn't want to come and deal with their sin. Apart from honesty and confession of our sin, together we cannot be healed from sin. So there's no reason the church has lost its power today. If you can't be honest about who you truly are, and then you can't be transformed by God, if you're not transformed by God, how's the church going to transform the world? It will not. It cannot. We have to be a place that are honest about who we are before God. Don't hide your sin. Three and four, go find a Nathan for yourself. You need a Nathan. Listen, you've got to find somebody that's willing to be honest with you. you got to. Listen, nobody, that's, that's one of the issues in our country today. Nobody wants to hear the truth. Nobody. But as a Christian, we have to have Nathans in our life that live with us, that do life with us, that love God and love what God's trying to do in our life and are willing to be honest with us about sin in ways that we're straying from the will of God. And as a Christian, we got to want that. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong, but hey, the best thing you could ever be told is that you're wrong because it's the pathway to what God wants to do in your life. Go find you a Nathan. And then the last one is be a Nathan for somebody else. Would you be a Nathan? Would you be a person that's willing to be honest with somebody? Would you love somebody enough to walk through life with them, to talk about what you're struggling with and, and come alongside of them and say, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be a Nathan in your life. The most important question we can ever ask is how are we responding to the sin in our life? How are you responding to the sin in your life. And then the last thing, and I'll close with this, is this passage shows us the hope of a better king. I love this. Man, I love this. You know, the Israelites thought David was going to be the guy. They thought Saul was going to be the guy. And then they thought David was going to be the guy. And listen, for a while, they were the guy. Man, this is, this is awesome. This is the king we've always wanted. But Saul fell, and then David fell. What's it pointing us to? Because we need a king but the king we need is Jesus. You see, the, the main difference between King Jesus and King Saul and King David is that Saul and David were takers. But King Jesus is a giver. And David wasn't a taker his whole life, but when he fell into sin, he was. Did you notice what he told, what, what, what Nathan told David? He said, you're not going to have to die. Your sins have been forgiven. What is he talking about? David deserved to die, right? Adultery, murder, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, like justice of God on somebody that is wrecked. If you're Uriah from the grave, your blood is crying out for justice. Where does that justice come from? It comes from Jesus. We have a God that loves you so much, that is so just, that the sin that you and I commit on a daily basis, the sins that we've committed our entire life that deserve death, Jesus stood in our place on a cross 2,000 years ago, and he took all the punishment due our sin, every bit of it. He drank the cup of God's justice and wrath, and he threw it down. You remember what he said? It is finished. What was finished? 
of sin. Maybe you begin to underestimate sin in your life. Maybe for you today, it's the process of sin. Maybe you, you're starting to see characteristics of these in your life, and God's asking you to, to step away. Maybe for you, it's it's the response. Maybe maybe you, you need to learn from David and say, I want to repent. God, Psalm 51 is the cry of my heart. God, would you create in me a clean heart? Whatever it is this morning. Maybe for you, you're not saved. You don't have a relationship with God. You've never realized that what Christ did on the cross was for you. And God's made that personal. Listen, that's salvation. That's what God's trying to do. And he wants to change your life forever. If you're in this room today and you say, Billy, that's me. Today, the cross has become personal. And I want to be saved. I want to give my life to Jesus. Would you lift your hand right where you're at and say, Billy, that's me. I want to pray for you. Anybody in here? You'd say, Billy, that's me. That's me. I'll give you a second. Anybody raise your hand high? So God, for the rest of us, here's my prayer. Father, would you grow us? God, we want to be more like you. God, we want to be transformed. God, we want to be honest about where we are and who we are. And God, we realize you love us and you're the king that we need. So God, as we sing this last song, King of Kings, God, will we reflect on the fact that you are the king that we need. And God, will we bring everything that we are before you and allow you to change our lives forever. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.